Good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, your host for this Hacking the Red Circle conversation, where we talk to people in the TEDx world you'll want to know better. The show is designed to learn what it takes to produce, organize, promote, and create a world-class event. If you're an experienced organizer, you'll get some great tips. Veteran organizers share lessons they've learned so that first-timers can avoid common missteps. There are hundreds of amazing people in the TEDx universe, and we talk to a lot of them. If this is your first time to the show, welcome. We produce Hacking the Red Circle every week. You'll want to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Now, on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I am I am thrilled to be talking again to someone on the East Coast of the United States with Ajit George, who is from TEDx Wilmington, which is in Delaware. And Ajit, um, I, I see that you're really active on the TEDx organizers Facebook page. I see that Ajit George shows up all the time. Like, so I'm curious, do you just, you live on the site because you're, you're liking and commenting and it just, you're very active. Well, I'm active because I learned from others, from the TEDx community. That page has taught me so many things uh, that I didn't know. So I recommend that as a place for people to learn from others who are doing interesting and exciting stuff. So I will go to Facebook four times a day. And whenever I do, I if I, there is nothing from TEDx community, I will okay at least once a day go to the TEDx community page to see what the four or five new posts are and the commentary. It's just a great learning tool from learn, learning from others. Of all the communities that I uh, am a member of, that is the one that is the most responsive. So if I put up a question, I hear a question, or there's some something that I don't know, I can put it up there and guaranteed by the time I go to sleep, there'll be half a dozen responses. I love that. And, you know, you cannot beat the collegiality of it. Nobody actually tears you down even if you made a mistake. And what I love is the respect that people have from around the world for each of us who are organizers. So I am very grateful. I I agree. And I appreciate you sending me in advance of uh, our conversation uh, what you call 2017 by the numbers. And I (laughs) – well, first off, I I am jealous. Uh, it, now, is that published on your website? Can someone it, go there? It, uh, the answer is I don't know, but it's uh, it is. I will look it up and see whether we have published it. We the reason we created it is we did it once a year at the end of the year. We create a photo book of all of our events and we share it with as a thank you gift for our sponsors. And that was a page from that book. But people kept asking us questions about what, how many events we did, what was our events like. I made that into a PDF page, and you're one of the first people that I'm sharing it as a PDF page because I got tired of explaining how many events we had because, first of all, there was a sense of disbelief <laughs> that came with it. So I thought it would be easier to share it as a PDF. But I will put it on our website. <laughs> I And I will post this on the show notes. But I was... I was shocked that you have you had 12 events in 2017. So most of us do one and we're happy to get one. But in the time between 2012 and now, you've had 164 total talks. No, in between 20 which I mean no, that was 164 talks just in 2017. Oh, come on. That is. Yes, that is. We had 172 speakers who gave 164 TEDx talks just in 2017. Okay, so we're going to spend the rest of the hour understanding how you did that. (laughs) I'm shocked. And I love the names. In uh, February, there was Swipe Left, and then there was TEDx Youth and Lust for Life, Limitless, Personal Finance, and then Adulting. How was that? I love that name. So you, so the way we got to is the salons 
we obviously have the ability to create a narrow focus. Yes. And so we spend the year before that. So just to give you the history on this, we had done six salons in 2016. And the response was surprising how amazing people rallied around it. And we got lots of ideas from attendees and members of the TEDx Wilmington tribe of what we should do in 2017. So that's where the genesis of ideas come from. Uh, and I would have never picked Adulting 101 uh, or, or Swipe <laughs> Left as I am 64. I'm going to be 64 <laughs> next month. And it's not subjects that I would have gone willingly. But what happened is a group of young people, millennials primarily, approached us and said, "These there are some issues that millennials are uh, struggling with. And they would really like to uh, see us address talks and also attract people who are millennials to come to the come to the events and i said what 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 are the issues and one of the issues they really helped talked was was the conversation about adulting 101 what does it mean to be an adult i mean for me at 64 i thought that was a fairly uh, i mean i guess no i never had to think about that because i wanted to be an adult but they made the point, and there was a, a group of people on our TEDx, and most of my tribe members are very young, but there was a special group that got created, and they really uh, wanted to do two events uh, that were geared to the younger folks and that had a different admission price. And the first one was Swipe Left, Love, Dating, and Situationships. And the truth is, I didn't even know what Swipe Left was. Turns out, uh, um, uh, uh, but clearly shows my You're happily married. Yeah, it's happily married and shows my age and therefore didn't know what any of that stuff is. Um, but uh, what it really came around is a conversation about, uh, you know, what does dating even mean in 2017? Yeah, sure. What does relationships sure. mean? And so I agreed to do a um, salon that was primarily but obviously not exclusively focused on millennials that really had this conversation, which was picked by a group on our TEDx tribe, Swipe Left, Love, Dating, and Situationships. And we had uh, these speakers talk about it. It was ex We attracted primarily a very young crowd because of the topic. Uh, we also attracted people who were slightly older than that, who were in transition in relationships. And it's obviously a conversation uh, that, attracted we had a, uh, we sold out the event we were very successful in it and that led us into a second session in the fall which is adulting 101 so it was the same group of young people that helped me plan or find the speakers and come up with the idea who did did adulting one and swipe left love dating and relationships and the most interesting talk out of that was a young woman named Yvonne Orji, whose name you may or may not be familiar. I wasn't. She's a HBO star, um, and she's from Nigeria, and she's, I think, now 32. Um, and she's a virgin. And in her show, she plays a very much of a slutty, a slutty person on, uh, on it. But in real life, she's a virgin. And she talked about why she has consciously chose to be a virgin. And that particular talk talk, while it's a TEDx Wilmington talk, it's a salon talk, not picked up by TED, uh, has had well over a million views since last year. And uh, it's pretty remarkable because she has a huge following and the number of people that uh, have been apparently impacted by this talk. And it just shows you that you really have no idea that a, a TEDx talk about being a virgin at 31 could have a really consequential viewership. I mean, I would have never predicted it. <laughs> well, every, every talk has an audience. It's can the talk find the audience? And you found collectively an audience of 7.4 million views of your talks? As of last night, and as I sort of shared with you, uh, we have a team of very young, smart people who figured out this year how to tap into the API that apparently is publicly available on YouTube. I don't even know how to even find it, so don't ask me how to do it. But they not only accessed it, which apparently is legal and is publicly available, they've created a computer software program that automatically takes all of our talks. So we just right now, just to give you an idea, we have 
375 talks since 2012 total. And uh, every mid at midnight every night, um, the uh, the API is called by this computer program, updates the talks and posts it on our website for all of our talks. And the number you have of the three seven million uh, four hundred plus uh, thousand talks was updated last night. It's, you you know. You have to know that as people listen to this show, they're going to want to know how they can get a hold of that. So it's going to be a little while before this gets published. So you have time to, to figure get out ready. what your position is going to be on that. I uh, will, so like a good TEDx organizer, I will ask my team to share their knowledge uh, with you, and then you can share it, and then we'll share it. When this goes live, we'll share it, and then we'll also put it on the TEDx community. There is nothing secretive we want to be. We want to be like every good organizer, share, uh, share Which is the the basis of this whole show um, that now people are going to listen to this in a little while, but I'm just back from a week at Ted fest and people say like, why do you do this show? And it's why do we spend a thousand hours or more producing our event is because we want to share ideas. We want to help ideas take flight. And for me specifically, I'm really interested in sharing the best practices about how we can all do our events better. And as more and more people come in, we create this great body of knowledge that we can absolutely share. So I love that in the spirit of, of sharing these ideas, they're not proprietary. Let's, let's let them free. I have a question about. Uh, you're so involved. I mean, with, with 164 talks just last year, do you have time to go to other TEDs within the region? Because you could drive an hour and, and go to another TED, yeah? We, we do anyone that is in our state. I go to every TED event that is within Delaware that I go. Uh, that is a great that because they all reach out to me for help and I make it a point to visit them to be part of their event uh, and support them. We lend our letters because many of them don't have the money for letters or any other support that we can give. They're also invited to come to our events. I have not had the chance to go uh, to TEDx Midlandic, which is high on my list, but I've sent members of my team. Yes. And, I, and I haven't gone to TEDx Beacon Street, which is probably number one on my list of places. But what I've tried to do is we fund the travel and, and costs for of our TEDx tribe members who have not had the exposure to TED that I have mm -hmm. and to go to events. So we send like four people to TEDx Mid-Atlantic. We'll send them any TEDx tribe member that wants to go to another TEDx event uh, in the continental United States. I will fund the registration fee and 50% of their travel because I believe that is how we gather knowledge. Now, I've been lucky to go to TED Global in Geneva in 2015 and then Banff in 2016, TED Summit. So I feel that I am somewhat blessed to have attended those and I need to give the opportunity to my younger members who really need the exposure to this incredible international community that we call TED. There is something so dramatically um, a widening of our horizons when we go to one of these events where there's hundreds of us together and we see the names of cities that we didn't even know existed <laughs> and we meet these amazing people and that thread that ties us all together is our, our passion for doing this. And it's been said often on this show, this, this sense of being non-competitive with one another. We're not competing in any shape or form uh, whatsoever because what is there to compete? We are all sharing ideas. And, you know, it's not like I am taking a speaker away from you uh, in Santa Barbara. It's absolutely not, you know, and, uh, um, you know, or, in, or any other community that is out there. I get actually referrals from speakers, um, from organizers, from other communities um, to come uh, to our event because we are closer or they think it's a better fit. So it's sort of that interesting world of communication, I feel very blessed to have recommendations of other people coming in. Is there something that you do that you feel is unique to your tribe? Something that makes people, I mean, I don't know that there's specifically a, a, a Delaware thing, but maybe there is. 
Well, I I suspect the folks at TED are asking the same question because they were grilling my members of the three people who went up to TED Fest about how we <laughs> how, how do we get our speakers? Why? How does this happen? Uh, there is this notion that how does it, how does a small city uh, in a small state that no one knows where it is uh, have uh, on it? And I think it's a function of a couple of accidents in history, uh, three accidents I would say. One is their geographical location. We are halfway between New York and Washington. So we are captured, we are in that place where it's easy for people from New York to Washington. We're an hour and 20 minutes by train from New York or Washington, which sometimes is easy, faster to come to Wilmington than from a suburb of New York or Washington to go into the city. Uh, we are 17 miles from Philadelphia Airport. We are 60 miles from Baltimore. So we are positioned in that Mid-Atlantic region. So we pick up stuff that we would never pick up if we were in the heartland of the USA or someplace else or in a large state like California, which has such bigger cities, right? I mean, right. so that's an right. accident. The second thing is really the accident is that Delaware is a corporate state. More than close to 60% of all the Fortune 500 companies are incorporated in Delaware. So we are disproportionately and always have had this corporate influence. And because of that, we have a lot of floodgates of ideas and people and resources that most people don't even have in larger states. I mean, our ability to attract sponsors, our ability to attract the caliber of stuff is a function of our rec our, even though we are very, very small. It's that disproportional nature of what it is. And the third thing is it helps to be 63 or 64 years old, as I'm going to be next month, is because I have built over time a very large Rolodex of international, national, and local contacts through my various experiences in life. And that enables people to reach out to me that, cannot, that don't typically reach out to somebody who's 25 and doesn't have those contacts. And those contacts end up having a very unique ability to attract interesting speakers. Uh, so if I have an idea, uh, I can reach out and say, do you know someone who can speak right. on this subject? Right. Uh, well, you've got to know somebody to be able to reach out. You just can't put it on Facebook <laughs> I mean, uh, and do that. Uh, and the final thing is because we've had 397 speakers speak so far since 2012, uh, we and 98 99% of those speakers have enjoyed their experience. We get tremendous referrals, which we don't even necessarily ask for, from those speakers recommending other people they know that have ideas who are spreading. So we we have an unbelievable pool of people that apply for apply to us, even if we don't know who they are. I love the alumni. Don't you love the alumni? Absolutely. We, we, we really cater to that. We actually, this year, we have grown to a place where we have now appointed a speaker ambassador, an ambassador to past speakers. And this person on our tribe's sole responsibility is to connect on a regular basis with past speakers and making sure, is there a question? Is there a need? Is there some way we can be continued to be connected? Because it is pretty remarkable. So the alumni of speakers, in our case, is our backbone. And and we literally recognize it by, by this year having an ambassador to those speakers. That right there, usually at the end of the show, I ask about the hack, but that's such a fantastic hack to have a position on the team that's the speaker ambassador, which is a liaison to the alumni. I love that idea because that doesn't cost you anything, but it's just complete upside. Now, do you, I, it looks like your events are around 250, up, maybe up to 300 people. Correct. And that is correct. And we, we keep them small intentionally because, yes. A, we are a small city. Uh, but uh, over the year, we probably attract about 2,400 people um, uh, between all our events. We could put it in a larger venue. There are venues that are larger. I have intentionally chosen not to do it because there's a sense of intimacy that comes yep. during the break period. Yep. If there is, We have a venue that's 1,800 people. If I put 1,800 people and, God forbid, I sell out uh, – you know, I can't imagine how those, how the speaker during the breaks, the speakers would get.
get an opportunity to connect with uh, with 1,800 people. So I have deliberately chosen to keep it at venues that are more uh, intimate, for the lack of a better word, um, and so the speakers have an opportunity, and the get and our audience has an opportunity to walk up to speakers and have engage in the conversation in a very informal way, whether it's over a cup of coffee or a beverage or over lunch. But in reality, it's much. It's you know I try to keep it. I joke my ratio is roughly ten to twelve guests per speaker. You know, if so if I have twenty, <laughs> if I have twenty four speakers uh, and I have three hundred people, it's really gives me a ratio and you understand what I'm saying because because once you get to a thousand people there is just no way to keep any semblance of that ratio working and and there is uh, I completely understand that and I've made that choice as well we have two venues in town that are you know double and then double again what we do we're 300 you could go to 600 go to 1200 they're beautiful beautiful but there's (laughs) something about standing in the red circle and you've done this as the host Standing in the red circle and being able to see the whites in the eyes of the people yeah. in the back row. And for that's just of importance to me. But then Elena in Sao Paulo says, that's 10, let's, people. let's do 10,000, you know, and that's fine. So it's, it's just different. So I want to, I want to move on. Oh, I have one question I wanted to ask. Is there a food that you serve at the event that's unique to your event? No, it's not. We actually try to use different caterers, uh, so and it's gotten exceptionally complicated. We have asked, uh, and now it's part of our ticketing thing: is uh, do you have dietary restrictions? Oh my and goodness! What, uh, oh. So we are. We actually serve vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, shrimp-free, peanut-free. So each person, but they have to choose it during the ticketing. It's an affirmative question in Eventbrite that we're now asking, and they have to say yes or no. And uh, so we have created a monster, which which is sort of a good monster, because what we're really doing is paying attention to the guest experience by doing that. and as a result, uh, while we could have had crab food, crab seafood, and other kinds of things that are native to the Mid Atlantic and Delaware, uh, uh, we really what we are focusing on is what do our guests feel that they would want to have. That's ask people what they want and give it to them, right? Absolutely, it's a simple secret. What after all of these years? Let me. I'm actually change my question. How involved are you in speaker training and curating? Because that's a lot of spe- a lot of coaching. We, I am in, so let, here's how we uh, make the process because of the size of our number of speakers. There's a, there's a large number of people involved in curating, if you may, the applications, but every final decision of who gets selected uh, out of the finalist pool, uh, I get involved in that pool of decision because I think I am, as the organizer, I need to take responsibility why a particular person got spoken on why the topic got spoken. So I don't want to blame anyone else, but there's lots sure. of input. And I, and there are many people I don't see because they get weeded out before I get there. And I get involved in uh, – there. Are, now we have assigned every speaker uh, in 2018, for example, to at least one, perhaps two t- uh, tribe members so they can get different kinds of coaching. So our process is a fairly <laughs> – so you apply – we select you. We send you a seven-page, what I will call a legal agreement to sign, which requires you to initial in 10 spots, uh, saying on commitments on dates. It starts with submitting your uh, agreement back, your release, TED release. It signs with uh, the first as an outline. They have to submit two videos uh, uh, for our feedback, which we give them. And then we give them uh, three, uh, we, uh, we, they are required to submit three blogs. One is in the early part of the process. One is two weeks out before the event. And one is 30, within 30 days after <laughs> the event. And the blogs serve as a Rorschach test for us. We can tell when someone is actually working on their talk as opposed to writing perfunctory things, uh, Mark. And so the blogs have become also great marketing for us. So 
what I say is I watched the process. There's a whole lot of people involved individually in giving feedback. Everything comes back. I get copied on all the feedback. And if I think something is a little too harsh or perhaps has a different way of stating, I don't ever countermand people. But what I try to do is to say, just so you can think, you know, sometimes I find that we gave 12 minutes, but the speaker really has an extraordinary idea and it really should go to 14. I say to my team, I've made the decision it goes to 14. I don't want it to cut because I think this is uh, this is an extraordinary idea and let's let's give it time. Uh, so what I try to do is a balance between empowering people on my team to do stuff at the same time, paying real attention to curating. But I'm also what I'm really doing is trying to build a depth in my team sure. in in curating and what my ultimate legacy. When I retire from TEDx, whenever that is, or when Ted decides they don't want me anymore, it's really—it's uh, really, uh, I'm joking. Uh, it's really around have, help create maybe six to ten uh, TEDx events within thirty to forty miles. That each one of the people that I've mentored, that I've given depth, can organize and run, and that would be my legacy to see people have events that they can own and they can grow on it, and. That's really what I'm trying to do. I, I love that. And you're, you're figuring out all of the organizational things and thinking about the team. You're thinking about all of the pieces. I'm curious, what's your day job? I, I am a real estate developer. I was a real estate developer. I retired in 2010. Uh, I uh, spend my days, what I'm really good at is marketing. So I have two to three marketing clients a year that are year-round clients. I do strategic marketing. And in addition to that, I'm involved in two ventures. One is involving uh, is, uh, creating a, a vertical farm uh, that will hire exclusively people coming out of prison called Second Chances Farm, LLC. So that is my venture that's consuming a significant amount of energy. And the other one is bringing a program that I got exposed to TEDx San Quentin uh, uh, called uh, The Last Mile, and I want to bring that Last Mile, which is a computer coding program, to Delaware, and that's the other project that I'm working on. So I have these buckets of interest and work that I do uh, that have nothing to do sort of with TEDx, although both Second Chances Farm and Last Mile came out of TEDx Talks. So and let me see if I got that right. So a TEDx Talk inspired you to go do a venture. That's correct, which is the Second Chances Farm, which which is a vertical. There were two TEDx talks on the same year. One was on a vertical farm in old warehouses at a commercial yep. scale. Yep. I was yep. fascinated by the idea of growing commercially 365 days a year, which we could never do in the East Coast in this part of the world. And there was a second TEDx talk, which involved providing the talking about hiring people who come out of prison and reducing recidivism rates. These were unrelated talks, and I decided to combine them together and to create a vertical farm uh, that when it starts, it'll only hire people coming out of uh, out of the prison system to re reduce the recidivism rate. And so there are two talks that inspired me to uh, create action and to make a change. I am, uh, my goal over the next, uh, I made the announcement on my 63rd birthday last year in May that and within by the time I'm 70, my goal is to create 70 capitalists uh, with a small C, capitalists are people who are self-sufficient or entrepreneurs, and, and and but those all seventy, I want them to be people who are coming out of prison, and uh, so that I want to focus on that group because no one is focusing on self-sufficiency and capitalistic tendencies. I believe capitalism is, is a very good system, but. People who don't have access to it will never get into it, and I want to create the economic opportunity to do that. That right there, there's a TED talk right there. I want, I want, <laughs> I want to hear that talk. Uh, All right. I, I know, you know, we can't give talks at our own event and people ask us all the time. I mean, they ask me, when are you, when are you doing a TED talk? I, I don't. That's not my job. I do. My That's job what is I say. To make a red circle. And so Greg Tevin at TEDx Fargo, he says, I'm not accepting that answer. I want you to come give a TED talk on my stage. So this July, I'm, I'm actually, I'm now enduring all of the, um, stress that we put our speakers through. So I'm getting wow. a little taste of that. So I get the organizer bit. I've been doing that myself. And now I'm seeing what it's like on the other, when the shoe's on the other foot. And I'm actually enjoying it. And I thought it was interesting when you said 
that you have them do three blogs. The speakers do three blogs because I actually started a notebook here, a nice red Ted Santa Barbara notebook on my my own journey to the red circle uh, to keep track of those things. If you are curious, and I encourage the people who are listening to this uh, uh, to go to our website, we have a whole tab on blogs, and there are hundreds of blogs written by our speakers. And they were written uh, for two reasons. One is for me to understand where the speaker was at any given point. But far more importantly, it was really advice that could be read by prospective speakers and new speakers on what the process was for it. So by used to only have two blogs, now we do three. One is after the process. What was it like to start after they got the invitation? What was it in the middle of the process? And what was it after the talk? And it is extraordinarily revealing and very emotionally powerful and absolutely probably other than Chris Anderson book is probably the most read thing on a read is the blogs because it really helps speakers connect with past speakers. I I'm, I'm putting that down as advice for all of us to do. I've never heard that before in all these conversations. I love that. Did you get that idea from somebody? No, I got it because I was struggling to get a benchmark of where people were in between their conversations with us or their videos. I just couldn't get a sense of, well, are they? did they really read Chris Anderson's book? Are they really working on uh, practicing mm-hmm. and rehearsing? Uh, where are they? And so we start with an outline. Next is a blog. Then it's a video. Then it's a blog. Then there's the final video. And then they give their talk. And then there's a final uh, thing. It has worked magically. And when if you do get a chance to read our blogs, you will really get a sense. Obviously, some people write better than others, but it really gives a tra- relatively transparent, and you can tell who was just bullshitting us and not really being right, right. honest, and their talks tended to be not as good, but people who were vulnerable and honest, really, their blogs ex- really gave us an insight. That's why I call it a Rorschach test as to where they were at that time, and it really became my way of saying, this person is in trouble, this person is in good shape. A, a question that I had just came up I talked with TEDx Pretoria just mm-hmm. recently, and she was telling me that they had. A, I asked her what the biggest surprise was, and she said that she had a speaker that they had gone through the whole process, much like you say, very rigorous process, dress rehearsal the day before and everything. And then on the day of the talk, they completely changed the talk entirely and gave a talk that was. Uh, a political, religious political talk, and it felt like they had been scammed, if you will, right? Okay, here I'm going to do this talk. I'm going to go through the process, but then I'm going to throw that away. I'm going to talk about what I really want to say. My question to you is, have you ever had anybody change their talk on the day of? They have added to their talk. Uh, They have subtracted from their talk. They have modified the talk, but no one has done what you just experienced, what you had told me. And if it happened, basically that talk would never, I would cut right. off the video and the live stream, let it continue. I wouldn't do what TEDx Brussels did, right. pull them off that stuff. Right. But reality is I would, I would shut the live stream down. I would just simply say thank you and just move on. Because if somebody is that pathologically prepared to lie to you, there's nothing you can say that will make right. a difference. Right. Uh, people often, where we find the changes come is after rehearsal. Rehearsal, we do a rehearsal dinner for all of our speakers together uh, after the rehearsal. And that is a very cathartic, has become probably the most cathartic experience because, and we invite our members of our TEDx tribe to join us. And we go around the room to talk a little about each person, not about their talk, just to get a little insight. But during that dinner, which is a fair two, three hour dinner, uh, other speakers share insight about what they heard during rehearsal. And speakers sort of settle down. It's what I call they get off their space, uh, you know, their their unsettled, uh, unsettling feeling. And people in 
most times any changes made comes between rehearsal and that dinner where they got some critical feedback that was more powerful than anything we had commented prior to it. And actually magic, we say, where did that come from? And it is a good where did it come from rather than where did it? It's just that they needed that confidence building exercise of rehearsing it and getting feedback from what they consider their peers. Because we end up having really extraordinary relationships uh, primarily because of Facebook, but in addition to Facebook, with the speakers in the class, whichever event they do, they tend to galvanize together and feel that they're a class of uh, speakers and they're all rooting for each other. Is that dinner um, after the dress rehearsal or rehearsal after the, dra- after the dress? After the- after the rehearsal, right? The, so we do a full rehearsal the night before, right, uh, right. regardless of whether it's a salon right. or a regular event. And then the next, and so it's the night before, um, which is somewhat unnerving because some people want to go to bed quickly. But invariably, people say they're glad they stayed because they learned something from somebody else, sure. and there is that camaraderie. Uh, but because I believe part of what we really should not forget is to have fun and to have to create relationships and this the creating this community of alumni is really creating you got they won't have an ch- opportunity after the event because people are dispersing to various places and right. other places and so the opportunity to uh, to feel like they are part of that team that is going to put out and they root they applaud the next day they are they even applaud more than their family it is that the group of speakers typically with very rare exception, become the best champions for the other speakers the next day. There is nothing like the cohort and the bond that is built between them. We, we help other TEDx's and, mm-hmm. you know, we get, you know, the seven, 10, 12 speakers uh, together in, on Zoom and we get them together all the time. And they, like you said, they root for one another. They, I love this idea that, oh, because we do a dinner as well, but we don't really go around the table. I like that idea. I'm going to take yeah, that we, one from you. Yeah, and we do. And what we ask them is to say something that nobody else, something that about themselves that is nothing to do with the talk per se. Because and and then we and then we ask them to just give the title of the talk because everyone has heard their talk at the rehearsal, uh, and it's remarkable what insights we pick from people and the business relationships and the social relationships in most cases have lasted much longer because somebody said, wow, I'd like to get to know you better. I'd like to work with you. I'd like to do something. So, I mean, I think that's a part of our intangible benefits that we offer right. that we cannot right. we cannot quantify. That's hard to explain because they're going to be putting in 120 hours plus uh, in right. practicing, right? What's the, the, it sounds like you have everything just dialed. And I know it's not. I know it's not. So what's where's the big dragon in this story? The dragon in the story is, for us, is really making sure speakers understand it's about one idea what's spreading and that they need to stick to one idea. Uh, invariably, regardless of what I tell them, regardless of our very comprehensive application or invitation, people feel this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and they want to cram every idea that they have had into one talk. Yeah. Uh, and, and the smarter the person is, the greater the challenge that is because they think they can do something that no one else has done. And what I say to people is we're trying to cut, reduce the number of minutes from 18 to 12 as our magical number. We do have a couple of 18s and a couple of 16s and coming up in next week. But the reality is it is not about time. It's really about making sure you have clearly articulated that one point. And if that one point also has a call for action, which invariably they should be, then having enough time to do it. And my favorite thing after visiting, after being at TED Global in Geneva and TED Banff, uh, TED Summit in Banff, is I tell my speakers uh, during rehearsal, I want you to imagine that this talk has nothing to do with the 250 or 300 people in the room. Uh, they are very important because without them there, we couldn't do this event. It's really who's going to watch you both on live stream and more importantly on the video. But I want you to imagine the following thing. I want you to imagine there's somebody listening in South Sudan, Kazakhstan, Brazil, and Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Three of those countries, English is the second or potentially the third language. The norm 
what you got to understand is we're talking to a global audience. And if we are trying to transform lives in places like South Sudan and places like Kazakhstan or Brazil or anywhere, we got to be able to make sure that the message is clear and it's almost a second grade level, but make sure it's articulate and clear and not use jargon. And that to me, the dragon for us, it doesn't matter how much we put into a protocol, how many agreements we sign, what we tell people, how many books, is making sure. And I think it's act of rehearsal that people, when I really get to talk to them about imagining the speaker of a young girl uh, being who is looking for a window in the world of saying, how can I transform? And to being in South Sudan or Kazakhstan, that experience of in 170 countries that TED is involved in it. I said TEDx is a global community and this is what makes this talk different from every other talk you have done or you will ever do yep. because yep. because you're talking to a live audience which 10,000 people or 200 people this is going to remain on it. And I think that's the dragon that until the day I uh, I'm no longer do this will continue to learn how to say it better and how to make it better, and how to make the conversation globally appropriate. <laughs> and particularly for people who speak fast, uh, to slow it down, people who have accents, and, and more importantly, to have fun and to take pauses. Yes. Oh my God, teaching people how to take pauses because they think it's deadly as opposed to seeing it as a tool for people to catch up with your thought. We call it the power of the pause. But I know I, uh, people look at me very weirdly when I say that. But I said, believe me, when you watch your video, you'll be grateful for your to yourself. So I have to say that uh, my wife is a speaker coach, and yep. sitting at TED Fest watching the talks live from the main stage, yep. unedited, right? So mm -hmm. they still so, have the yep. ums and the ahs and the repeats yep. and all of that. And there was one particular speaker who was a master pacing and cadence and the pause and you couldn't take your eyes off of her she was spectacular yeah. and i you know my wife just kept you know giving me the elbow she says see that's when it's executed perfectly and i i love that I know what would be helpful is when that talk comes out and assuming it is published by Ted for you to share it on the community for us to share it with our speakers because one of the great challenges is what what do we mean by pauses and cadence because those are just words right and if we can show a real TED talk or a TEDx talk that is in your wife's case who is a speaker coach to say that is what I'm speaking about we can share and say that's what we mean by cadence that's what we mean by pause see that is that practice that that's what is important well so. i i took that to an absurd level you know what a telestrator is you ever watch sports where someone goes back and they circle yep. the player and they draw the yep. x's and the o's i said i need to get you a telestrator so that ah. when you're teaching you could go in and stop it and say look at because we're also looking at things like body movement and distracting, yeah. you know, the way they, they hover or the, all those kinds of things because they take the audience out of receiving the idea. That's all we care about is the idea, right? Get the right. idea out. And if to your point that your audience is that 7.4 million people who have watched, well, if it's either not compelling visually or the presentation or the vo vocal style, they're going to click. You're out. Yep. Boom. Right? You know doesn't, that. Doesn't care, doesn't care what your bio is and doesn't care how cute your title is. You are out. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you um, most looking forward to in your next event? When, when is your next event, by the way? We are doing a TED Live event, uh, which will be on uh, Saturday, yep. uh, April 28th. Uh, so we, we have. We'll wave to it. Uh, we'll wave to <laughs> We will do one session from TED Live, uh, and we have 24 speakers in three sessions. So it's a full day event. Um, and uh, we have a remarkable uh, number of good speakers. And we are working, my, the three people that attended TED, TED Fest are going to pick the one session that they listen to out of all of the sessions, because there's not enough hours in the day to watch 70 talks between now and next week. And so we will pick that one session. Uh, 
Um, so it'll be interesting. I mean, one of our big debates is where do we put that session? Do we start off with it? Do we end it with it? Do we put it in the middle? But that's a debate we'll settle in the next couple of days. But what we are really doing, one of the most interesting things we started last August in the middle of the year is one of our members of our team who you met, his name is Jake Voorhees. He is a videographer. He's an engineer by trade, but he volunteers with us. And we began an experiment, which is remarkable how it has been helpful. We, as soon as somebody finishes a talk uh, on the red carpet, we have a person called a speaker angel who actually works with each speaker on the day. It's like a green, sh a green room manager, but more right. intense. They literally, and she wears an angel outfit and with an <laughs> angel halo. No so no Nobody can miss her. I, so, need a, I need a picture of that, Ajit. I, I will get it for you. Send me a note and I'll get you a picture of her. And she basically protects and shepherds the uh, speakers. And the minute they finish their talk on the red carpet, and the applause is finished, they're walking off the stage. She makes sure they're unmiked. There's somebody else unmiking them. And she then t escorts them and introduces them to somebody in a green room. And that particular person is Jake, where they are interviewed for about five minutes about what it felt like to give a TEDx talk. So they get no moment to debrief, no moment other than go to the bathroom. They get taken to a green room or a private area, and they get asked by Jake what it what it felt like and that whole experience. What it has turned out, we have done 94 such interviews so far. They are profoundly insightful. Uh, 34 of them are on our website. Uh, we'll put all of them as they're edited and put on it. What it helps is for new speakers to understand what the reaction was of speakers who just finished to capture, if you may, that moment uh, when they walk off the rest stage, which, you know, a red carpet. And as you know, we rarely capture it because we're now as hosts so focused on the next speaker. We're going to the next level right, of stuff. Right, right. Um, and this, I'll tell you, Anytime I have a question of why I do it, I just watch one of these interviews and I realize the power of it. So this is the other thing we do that I don't think most people do, which is capture it. We use it as a way uh, of sh training other spe new speakers, but it's also a way we put it on our website for people to understand why did some of these people give their talk. And it is unedited. When I say unedited, it is edited, but it's raw. It's not scripted. They don't even know they're being interviewed. So they don't even get to think of it. There's no worry. They think they're just being escorted into a room for a debrief, but the debrief is on a video interview that is done by Jake. It's pretty remarkable. I am, uh, again, I'm thinking Juanita. Juanita, mm -hmm. uh, we're recording this on your birthday, by the way. Juanita is TEDx Brisbane. And she- yeah, I know. She told me that um, she walks into her team meetings with long lists of ideas that she gets from this show. And <laughs> Ajit, you've given me four fantastic ideas that I'm going to use uh, at TEDx Santa Barbara 2018. And I, I love, I love this idea of the ambassador. I love the idea of what you call it a hot wash. Right after you do something, you Absolutely. do a hot wash, right? I love that. But to get it on video is such a treasure. Um, I love the idea of how you understand what your uh, the the power that you have in your event being midway between two major metropolitan centers, being so close to everything. I, I loved all of that. I'm curious, um, what what's that thing that you do? The hack. That is free, doesn't cost anything. And I, I think it's having this speaker ambassador, but you may have another idea. What's that thing that you do that materially changes the experience? It might be for the speakers. It might be for the audience. It might be for the team. It doesn't cost anything, but it, it's, it was the thing you would tell when you're mentoring those other TEDx's around, as you said, within 30 to 40 miles of you. What is the hack? The two things I, I, I would say is my, uh, one is that to be absolutely take extraordinary good care of speakers uh, after the, after we invite them and they accept it is nurturing them and helping them through the process because we are as only as good as the speaker. And I, I come, I come, from, I have done a lot of food and wine festivals and my background, I love food and wine and I've done a lot of food. I always said we are as only as good as the chef or the winemaker's production. And if the food is bad, doesn't matter how great the restaurant is, if it's 
great bottle and label, but the wine is horrible. So we are only as good as the end product, and that's what I consider the speaker stock to be. So we invest t- love, time, talent, and resources in making speakers feel special. But the second thing is really uh, I say to people that I am a conductor of an orchestra. And a conductor gets all the attention because he dresses in a lovely outfit, black or white. Uh, <laughs> it's in tails. He's taking two little sticks and waving. Uh, but in my case, I have a 60 to 70 member orchestra. That's my tribe. Uh, I could wave all I want in a beautiful stick and stand on a box. But if there wasn't anyone playing music in harmonious way, it absolutely wouldn't work. And one of the key successes to our uh, events last year, to be able to do 12 events and to have 172 speakers who gave 164 talks, is the function that I, I had a remarkably, incredibly empowered orchestra that could sing without me waving. I was there because I was their leader I was the person who was oldest in the group, and I had enough experience with failure to be able to say we'll be all right. But the truth is, it is that orchestra that's making the music, not me. I'm going to end it right there. <laughs> that was fantastic. I mean, you as you were saying that, I, I was thinking to myself exactly what that looks like. And that would be um, a wonderful team photo to go to the uh, Wilmington Orchestra and be able to go sit during one of the rehearsals and have everybody wearing a red Ted T-shirt and you up there in uh, a black tux <laughs> and all of your whole tribe. That would be a fantastic picture. And We will work on that for next year. So. <laughs> I'm going I'm to paint that one in my mind. Ajit, is there any, any final words of advice you have to – because I know you listen to the show. So what advice would you give to other listeners of the show? I would say not to be afraid to make mistakes. Oh, that's number one. But second is I encourage organizers to do multiple events a year because to build community – when you only do one event a year is really very hard because you have a you have this huge momentum building to an event, then there's the crash, and then you have to wait for a whole year to do another event. Our success last year in creating a tribe and a good good orchestra is a function of the fact that we had 12 events. We had no time to fall asleep. There was always a different group working on the next set of events. Uh, so the people who created name tags became very good at creating name tags. People who created program guides became efficient. So I encourage TEDx organizers not to be afraid of doing multiple events uh, uh, because I think it creates community and because the salons particularly, you can focus on a topic. TEDx, I did TED-Ed this year for the first time. That was phenomenal. I've done TED Women. I'm doing TED Live. These all give opportunities for different communities to be part of your community, but it really energizes your team as long as you don't burn them out. You have to have a large enough team and you have to have a team that is aspirationally want to either replace you or to be themselves organizers. So that's my advice to other organizers. Most, I'm surprised how few organizers do multiple events. I uh, love that advice. I'm working on rebuilding my team because I would love to do more. We're going to do live and we'll do our main event, but I, I have big dreams that we will build a team and, and next year we'll, we'll do a few more and I'm going to take that advice. Ajit, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I totally, enjoy, I love your energy. You've got, just got great energy and uh, You're you, welcome. you need, you need a lot of it. You're, you make a great conductor, my friend. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Hacking the Red Circle. Have an idea for a guest for the show? Or would you like to tell us your TEDx story? Just drop me a note in an email to mark at hackingtheredcircle.com. Please be sure to rate, write, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Makes a huge difference. And share the show with your team as we seek to grow our audience around the world. Until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for Hacking the Red Circle.